Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hey there, Fangirl Nation. You are listening to Fangirl Sports Network's Get My Job on Blue Wire. I am your host, Tracy Sandler, and today I am so excited to be joined by ESPN Senior Coordinating Producer, Julie McGlone. Julie oversees ESPN's Creative Content Unit and Sports Center's Enhancement Unit. We talk about her part in this year's incredible NFL draft coverage and how they pivoted under difficult circumstances, while Julie also shares how to achieve a solid work-life integration. She also discusses how being a visionary got her to where she is today and the lessons she's learned. We are brought to you by Favor Apple Cider Vinegar. And with that, let's get to it, fangirls. Julie, thank you so much for joining me today for Get My Job. I am so excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting. I love having a, a, uh, a nice conversation with someone else in quarantine on the other side of the country. It is fun. It is fun. It's a good way to meet new people in quarantine when we can't actually meet new people in quarantine. So, right. Um, I'm very excited for so many reasons. Obviously, a huge fan of SportsCenter. I've been watching ESPN, you know, forever. Um, but I felt the draft coverage was just really incredible. And we'll talk more about that as we get going into this. But I think under difficult circumstances, the coverage was just done so, so well. And maybe there are things that will stay in the future. So congratulations on that. Uh, but we will, we will talk more about that. I'm going to start. Really, I want you to tell our listeners who you are and what you do. You, you are at the Sports Center Enhancement Unit, which is a mouthful, and the Creative Content Unit. And I would love for you to just let our listeners know kind of what that is for those of us who are watching your work on a daily basis. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Julie Fitzpatrick McGlone, and I say Fitzpatrick because people might know me from my former life, um, but I've been married for 15 years, known as Julie McGlone at ESPN. I oversee two groups at ESPN in the production content department, um, the Sports Center Enhancement Unit, we call it SKU, and the Creative Content Unit, we call CCU. Um, SKU is a team of approximately 20 producers and predators that really try to dive a little deeper in some of the stories in Sports Center. So um, a lot of essays, a lot of quick turn features. They're a 24-7 operation producing these really quick turn pieces that sort of help to, um, you know, further explain what's happening in sports news right now. So um, it's really been a great um, treat to work with this group. I've only been with them for just over a year, um, but 
you know, it's an honor to really contribute to Sports Center, which is the flagship program for ESPN. And it's just so much of our identity and how sports fans know us. Um, so to coming coming to Sports Center from the event side of the house, um, I really brought this like sort of let's create a big event or let's create a theme or let's create something or a franchise for Sports Center. And we've seen um, a little bit more of a push there to just do a little different um, and try to help sports fans see things through a different lens. Um, and then, so that's SKU. And then CCU is on the event side of the house. And that is um, 24 producers and writers. And they're essentially a creative SWAT team that produces the show opens, the music videos, the bumps, kind of the um, cool it factor for large events that help to kind of create an identity and elevate the production value of some of our larger events. So some of those things would include um, Monday Night Football, NBA Finals, College Football Playoff, World Cups when we used to do World Cups. Uh, the Home Run Derby for MLB, um, as you mentioned, the NFL Draft, Heisman, and so on and so on. So some of the bigger events, we really put some of those creative resources to. Can you talk a little bit about a, a quick turn piece and give an example for maybe our listeners who don't go note into this um, podcast is we talk for women in sports, women who want to work in sports. So I really like to highlight the different work people are doing. So what would be an example of a quick turn piece? Sure. So, you know, recently you may have no, you may have heard that Tom Brady left um, New England and signed what? with Tampa uh, Bay Buccaneers. I don't know. What? And then, <laughs> yeah. And shortly thereafter, then Gronk came out of retirement and he went to Tampa Bay as well. So we're, you know, those of us who enjoyed seeing Brady and Gronk together in New England, we'll see Brady and Gronk together again in Tampa coming this fall, which is just crazy when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when that news broke, you then sort of went into news mode and took that, um, that form or that headline, I should say, and turned it into a storytelling piece of, you know, uh, Gronk and the goat in, um, in Tampa together and sort of told that story of what they had done and then what we can expect to see in what became sort of a highly polished um, feature, if you will, but within 24 hours. So in that circumstance, that's something that we wouldn't go and do interviews and, um, you know, talk to the families and talk to fans and all of that because we wouldn't have the time we'd want to get it right on the air, but we want it to, to be a highly polished piece that, you know, someone from the NFL staff would, uh, would front and have an opinion on it. So, you know, a lot of times news breaks and we're like, what do we do? Um, we want to have something really high level to present to our fans. And that's where SKU comes in and pushes that out so that it's not just a press conference. Uh, once upon a time, I worked at Fox Sports, and I worked for a broadcast associate who's now a features a major producer there. But I would go through footage all the time, essentially preparing for anything like that that would happen, so that right. if something like that happened, he could say, "Okay, can you go grab that footage from?" We had a. It was when uh, Fox first had NASCAR. Is when I was doing this. I think I may have been. I can't remember if I was an intern or right out of college, but 
Fox at NASCAR and, and my job, honestly, for like a week was to watch footage on tires and wives. So that <laughs> as things happened, they could put together pieces. Um, so that was always my big joke, tires and wives. And that was, it was fascinating footage, I have to tell you. But that's why that stuff is there. That's why you need it. Just right. in case of a quick turn piece. So thank you. Thank you for exactly. el elaborating on that for us. So yeah. You're an innovator, I would say, uh, at SportsCenter and in the production of live events. And I was just wondering, can you talk about where that creativity comes from and where it was in your life that you first realized you had that ability? Well, thank you. Um, I would say <laughs> that, you know, a big part of creative for me is music. And, um, you know, I grew up in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is um, just outside of Detroit. And I was there in the Motown era in the 70s and 80s. And Motown was really a, a soundtrack for m my entire family. So when I kind of think of moments in my life and my childhood, I always, you know, there's a soundtrack that's playing in my head. Um, and I, I will say that, you know, the other benefit of being in um, – Detroit was that with the big three automotive, there was also a huge advertising presence. Um, and my grandfather was an ad man. So I learned to appreciate, you know, very creative, short pieces of content that we know as ads, you know, uh, in a, in layman's terms. And I always thought I wanted to be in advertising. I would watch the Super Bowl and see the ads and thought, I want to do that. Or, um, you know, and then through the sports lens, I would watch the Olympics or, you know, a large sporting event and would see these, what I call kiss and cry features and thought, well, I want to do that too. Mm -hmm. So I think my creative came as sort of a hybrid of really appreciating something really well done in short form. Um, and then also just loving sports as a, as more of an enthusiast, not as a, you know, true lifelong passion. I didn't know I wanted to go into sports TV. I knew I wanted to go into creative. Um, I got my first job uh, as an intern at the um, Detroit affiliate, uh, the CBS station in Detroit, as a writer um, in the creative department. I was writing voiceover copy, and that eventually led to a job as a promotion producer in the sports and entertainment department there, um, and it was a great job, and I learned so much, and it was during the time of, um, in the early 90s, during the time of Dr. Kevorkian. Um, and the Fab Five at U of M. Oh, and I, so I went I, to Michigan. They were before me. Yeah. But you're now you're speaking you're speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, and so you know we were the closest news station to Ann Arbor, and we were also the closest news station to um, Dr. Kevorkian. And so I sort of saw this cycle of ambulance chasing on the news side with Kevorkian and how crazy that was. And then I saw you know these sort of hometown heroes that were on a national stage who would come to the station as well. And, you know, I, I knew instantly I didn't want to do the news thing, but I knew how much fun it was in the, in the sports office. And so I was really drawn to sports media from that angle through the Fab Five. Um, and, you know, the advertising was always there, but I, I saw that um, in advertising, working at an agency, you're really only producing like one or two pieces a year. But in television, you have the opportunity to produce a lot more. And when I was a young creative, I really was hungry for more than just one or two things a year. And I will say that I think that the, the love to create in a free space in creative 
storytelling came very early for me. And then it was just a matter of staying that path. And I will say, I think one thing sort of led to the other. And in hindsight, I think the creativity and the creative confidence really builds with each project and each piece. Um, I eventually moved from Detroit to Vail, and I produced snowboard films and action sports TV profiles and shows there. And then I made my way to ESPN as an action sports specialist producer on the X Games. And I, I absolutely loved my X Games role for so many years um, and was really sort of a lab for creatives because we were just sort of making it up as we went along. Um, eventually, the X Games stopped telling so many stories and went to live, live, live. And I moved on to stick and ball uh, sports as a creative storyteller. Um, but I think looking back, you know, the years in action sports and on X Games, it was where I really just got all of my sort of crazy ideas out and then was able to apply it to what maybe then I think going to stick and ball and where you sort of see a linear line of how that works and sort of taking that a little curvier from my years of, of you know, just making it up as we go. Um, and there was just so much freedom because the athletes, you had access and you weren't restricted by, you know, a league or a team or the press process of five minutes, you know, for a sit down before a game. So I think, you know, I think the creative um, really just grows as, it, as a building block. It's sort of a foundation. And I would say that, like I said, it's very much music and advertising and then sort of the fun of sports and then just having the freedom to really grow with that and see where you can go was helpful to me, I think, as I sort of created my own portfolio through the years. So you said something interesting about music and advertising, and we talk a lot about on, on this podcast about having a skill set, um, especially for people who are just starting out, that you don't want to say no to an opportunity. So you want to be able to edit and you want to be able to basically do all these things digitally that people may ask you to do. But you bring up a point that we really haven't discussed yet. Um, talking about the importance of music and advertising, and I think music and sports and pop culture now do go together so frequently. What do you think the importance is of someone starting out or anybody who works in sports being well-rounded and not just being a big sports fan and knowing everything about sports, but having a little bit of the finger on the pulse on what's hot in music, what's hot in pop culture, so that you're able to marry those things together for your content? Yeah, wow, that's a really great perspective. Um, you know, I will say that being um, at the very beginning of your sports uh, media career right now is much different than it was when I started. Um, and you're just expected to know so much more and things happen so much faster. Everything moves so quickly that yesterday's news on social media is old news now because today it's, it's all just populating all over again. And I would say the same thing about what you're learning at school right now um, in media, the, the program that you're learning on, which is probably Adobe Premiere or, um, you know, it's definitely not Final Cut anymore, you know, that's going to be probably passe pretty soon. So I would say two things. I would say, number one, never stop learning. So if you think that you've gotten your degree and you're done and now you just go get a job and you do the job with the skills that you have from your four years in college, that's not, the, that's not going to take you very far. You have to continue that education. And it's not just 
it's not a formal education. It's more being curious and being hungry and wanting to know more. So when I look at, you know, today, how people are producing things in quarantine, obviously no one's leaving their house. Everyone is producing from their guest room or their dining room or their kitchen. And the acquisition or the actual shooting and acquiring content has become something that we're just all left with whatever we have on our cell phone or other people are pushing out from their cell phone. And so, you know, even 60 days ago, if you had asked me how we were going to produce content in May, I wouldn't have said we're shooting stuff on a cell phone, that's for sure. But being able to adapt and to learn how to do that because that's the situation in front of you, I think that's critical in media, whether it's sports media or news media or food TV or blogging or whatever, but just being curious and knowing that you have certain skills and knowing what you're good at and knowing what value you bring and then also being curious enough to learn other things enough to have knowledge to speak of them, to speak to them, um, or learn them yourselves, yourself and see where your career goes. Um, you know, this is going to sound really old, but when I was um, a really young producer, my first job in Detroit, um, my first manager, you know, I, I, I really appreciated her. Um, and I think I still appreciate her. And I, I don't even know why. I think it's just the basic foundation of what she gave me at the time when I needed it most. But in Detroit, I was in a union shop and I was frustrated because I couldn't touch anything. There was, it was NABET, IATSE, and I know a lot of those terms are foreign to a lot of people, but basically what it means is as a producer, you can't touch a camera, you can't touch back then a tape machine, you couldn't screen your own content. It was somewhat frustrating when I wanted to really dig my, my teeth in. And one of the big reasons I left that station was because I really wanted to just do more. And she said to me, you know, a really good producer knows just enough about every single position on their crew that they can speak with knowledge, that they garner the respect of that person on their crew, and that, God forbid, something happened to someone on their crew, they could jump in and do the job. And so I sort of left that job with the notion that I'm going to learn how to shoot so that I can talk to my DP or my shooter with knowledge and say, this is what I want from you. I'm going to learn how to do audio. Um, so I could talk to my audio guy. I'm going to learn lighting because then I can talk to my LD and say, this is what I think I need from, from you for lighting with knowledge. And I'm going to learn how to edit. And I became an editor. And so I think it, it was because I was so hungry, but in learning that stuff, it did make me a better producer because I knew what I wanted and how to get it done. And I knew how to talk to my crew. Um, and I think the same thing goes now today for young people who are looking to get into the business, maybe it's not as traditional as shooter and audio guy and editor and lighting director, but maybe it is learn how to shoot, learn how to edit, learn how to produce your own content. Even if right now you're just a PA or an intern, it still helps because when you get to that point where it's your turn to get in the, in the producer seat, you're that much more confident and you're speaking with knowledge rather than, oh, gosh, I've thrown into this position and I've never been here before and I'm not sure what to do. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that perspective. That's, I think, very helpful for a lot of people. Before we go on, we're going to take a very quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we're going to talk some NFL draft and some of your other innovative work. 
They say a healthy gut means a healthy you. Favor apple cider vinegar shots bottle this feeling into the convenience of a two ounce shot. Better digestion, stronger immune system, and the lowering of blood sugar levels are just some of the benefits to shooting a daily favor shot. Their proprietary blends are raw and organic and mixed with other functional ingredients to create a better tasting experience. First time shooters can go to drinkafavor.com. All right, Julie, so we've talked a lot about your journey to where you are, and you mentioned something before the break about 60 days ago, if someone told you how you were going to produce content, you know, how, how different it, it would be. And I think the NFL draft, and I don't mean to keep harping on it, but we just had it, and it really was incredible, is a great example because talk about having to pivot and having to pivot quickly on a on a event of that scale it really was a quick pivot and it was done really well. So I would love if you could talk about kind of the planning of that and at what point everybody sat down and said, okay, we're going to have to do this very differently. Everyone's going to be in our, their homes. We're putting Roger Goodell in his basement and let's do this. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about that process um, and kind of things that you learned there that maybe you wouldn't have been able to learn otherwise. Sure. Yeah, so first of all, the NFL draft was an incredible collaboration of many, many teams across ESPN, ABC, NFL, NFL Network, you know, our digital team, our, definitely our operations team. Um, it was sort of everybody grab an oar and let's row together and let's figure this out. Um, so let me just take a step back and tell you sort of my role or my team's role in the draft. Um, so traditionally, you know, we, we do provide, you know, a big show open and a lot of uh, what we call bumps, which are the elements going in and out of break, um, and some storytelling stuff and celebrity stuff for our bigger events. So last year for the NFL draft in 2019, we added the ABC broadcast. So we had the ESPN broadcast, we added the ABC broadcast and the ABC broadcast was specifically for viewers who were looking for more storytelling, who wanted to know the backstory of the players and where they came from and who their families were. Um, they wanted to feel, um, we were in Nashville last year, they wanted to feel Nashville. And we had this incredible scene with 150,000 people up Broadway, right in downtown Nashville. And so the role that the creative content unit had for the um, ABC broadcast last year was that, um, we were supposed to give a sense of um, sense of Nashville, a sense of celebrity, a sense of story. We um, collaborated with Jason Fitz, who's one of our talent, who is also happens to be a um, a musician who had worked in the country music realm for many years and was very well connected in Nashville. So he hooked us up with Brad Paisley and. Um, Keith Urban and all of these wonderful stars who welcomed us with open arms in Nashville. And we told these really rich stories and the ABC broadcast became sort of like the GMA broadcast because Robin Roberts was hosting and it was, you know, more for the female fan than the male fan. If you had to look at the demographics of it. Um, so this year, that, year. that works for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So then this year, going to Vegas, we had all these plans. We're going to go to Vegas. We went on a site survey. We scouted. We had already made set up our shoots. 
uh, we were with Wayne Newton. We were doing a pool party. We had impersonators. We were with the Blue Man Group, and we had we were set to do this huge production for Vegas. And in fact, the stage itself was supposed to be in the Bellagio Fountain, where the players would come up on boats instead of walking the, the red carpet traditionally. And when you think about that now, it just seems so far from where we ended up. But it's crazy. So we had all that planned. We were supposed to leave on March 15th to shoot. And instead on March 12th, you know, we were basically told no one can travel. And on March 13th, I met with um, Seth Markman, who's the VP of the draft. And, and he and I actually were the last person I saw in the office before I came home for this, for this quarantine. And he and I sat down and he said, I said, well, I can't put anybody on a plane. I don't feel good about this. We don't know where the draft is. We don't know how this is going to happen, but we can't do this. So we pulled the plug. We agreed. Not the right tone. Not not safe for people. You know, we're going to have to sit it out and see how this plays out. Well, in the next 72 hours, you know, we had declared this isn't happening the way we thought. And we sort of sat and waited for a good week and a half of where was it going to happen? Was it going to happen? Is it still in Vegas? Will the players be there? Will they not be there? And the whole time I'm still having conversations with the creative team and we we kept circling around this notion of hope, you know, and just, I hope that this goes well. I hope that, you know, people are safe. I hope that um, we can figure out how to edit remotely, you know, just X's and O's. And I hope that the draft takes place because if the draft takes place, that in and of itself is hope that there will be football and that, life will come back to normal and that sports will return because at that point sports had been shut down mm-hmm. and that notion of hope became our theme. And when I went back to Seth and I said, I know we were going to do sense of place and we were going to do this and we were going to do, but really if we could circle around hope, I just feel like that is like, that's our thing for the night. Like that is what this is. And he totally agreed. So we went with this notion of hope for our theme for everything we then set up with help of um, the communications department with Bill Hoffheimer and our legal department and our events team, we set up a website and put out the word that we wanted to hear from all of the fans, from all of the teams, what their hopes were for their team for the draft. And we got all this user generated content from the fans about, you know, just cheering, uh, you know, we got to replace, we got to replace Brady you know, I want Joe Burrow for, for Cincinnati, whatever it was. And they became these really sweet, emotional pieces of these people in quarantine still wanting sports, still craving, you know, hope for their team. And it just sort of became this rally, you know, this sort of like mantra, not only for all of us working on a Zoom screen for 30 days, um, you know, hoping that all of this would go well and hoping that, you know, that we were all going to come out of this on the other side, but also became just sort of like this really great, um, I don't know, just the North star for the event that we could all have hope. And that's just because we weren't having the draft traditionally, we were having it in this new way that there was still hope that, you know, football would come back in the way that we would love, you know, and tailgating would be back and high-fiving would be back and Lambo leap would be back and all of the things that we are missing just in isolation, it became a real emotional night and it was really well done. The operations on it was amazing to see Goodell in his basement and these players in their homes and it all went off without a hitch. And that's, you know, 
not just our group, but it's also Seth Markman and the operations group and all the other people who contributed as well. It really was. And I think it was so important that it did go forward because I know there was a lot of discussion about that beforehand, but you're right. It did give hope and it gave people something else to focus on for three days, which I think is important. Mental health is very important too. And I think something we've seen in this time is sports. It's very much beyond the game of sports. It really does bring people together. It is something that people enjoy. It is an outlet. And I think we're seeing what a loss it's been the last several months. Right. So I think it's hard. It it is hard. And I think the draft was a really important thing to happen and to go on. And it was done so well. Do you think there were elements of it that you guys will now bring into future broadcasts as things go back to whatever our new normal ends up being? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I can't speak for Seth, but I, I do think that just a little bit less formality made mm-hmm. it more, made the players and made the teams and made Goodell himself that much more relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when everyone is sitting in their pajamas, you know, at least their pajama pants when they're on yeah. Zoom, they're still, <laughs> they might put on a nice shirt and do the put some lip lip gloss on, but, you know, I feel like we've all sort of taken a a little bit of a step back. And um, I think that the NFL draft um, for so many people was just this notion that whatever you're going through, look at these incredible NFL stars and their families and the, and teams, you know, they're all go. We're all going through it together. So no matter what kind of stardom you have, or what kind of um, stature you have in sports, like we're right now, we're all going through the same thing. And I think it was so unifying, and it was so um, just uniting when we really all just needed that. One of my favorite images, and I can't remember if it was the end of night one or night two, was Goodell on his like his his chair his like lounge chair laying down just at the end announcing the picks and everything like you know what yeah we're we get it we're tired yeah. we totally get it <laughs> i'm tired too and where did all those m&ms go if i had all those m&ms yeah, exactly. for three hours i'd be eating them too holy cow yeah, it's pretty awesome it it's was pretty awesome and you're right it definitely humanized him in a way that i don't think there's any other way you could do that you could put together a PR campaign to humanize Goodell and you couldn't have done it as well. Um, not you, right. universally you, but I think it really humanized, it humanized everybody. And I think it yeah. also humanized athletes. And that's something we talk a lot about it at Fangirl Sports Network, that athletes are people and they have feelings and they go through the same things you do. And this is their job. And I think it really humanized everyone in that way. And it was great to see coaches and GMs with, their kids and Goodell and uh, Belichick's dog was, I mean, that was like yeah. one of my favorite. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing. You can't plan that kind of content. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's so great. I mean, Bill Belichick, Patriots dog, and it's Nike sitting there it was spectacular. Um, so yeah. it was, it was a lot of fun. So as, as you look back on your career, um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and then we're going to move around a bit, but as you look back, you talked about uh, your manager at your first job and how much you appreciate appreciate her to this day. Can you tell us a criticism you received in the beginning that while it was tough to take, and maybe it wasn't in the beginning, it could have been really any time, but while tough to take really helped to shape your future in a positive way? Um, sure, yeah. 
I think one of the tougher criticisms that I got um, when I was a young manager, I was told that I'm just too nice and the, that I should learn how to deliver feedback a little harsher so that people knew that I was serious. Um, and I said to, I said to the, the superior, he was a vice president, he was kind of grizzly, and he was a tough guy, and he was sort of known as a bully. And so I said, you know, one of, one of the, golden, the golden rule that my parents sort of ingrained in me was to treat people the way that you wanted to be treated. And I said, so when I give feedback, I'm probably a little gentler than you are. I'm like, because that's kind of the way that I would want to receive feedback. And I feel like everything in a creative production should be collaborative. So when I'm giving feedback, I want to have a back and forth conversation. I don't want it to be a punitive, you did this wrong, you know, you're in trouble. And he said to me um, that my parents should have been harder on me and that no one was ever going to take me seriously if I couldn't be more stern. And so that was hard to hear, but in hindsight, he wasn't wrong. Um, And, you know, that was part of me trying to find my own way and finding my own management style. And I think that I've evolved and I've changed and, and I can deliver tough messages, but I'm, I'm still probably kinder than most. And I do have this sort of tough love parallel that I use a lot when I'm, when people come to me for advice or are looking for guidance, or I do have to deliver a tough message to somebody. Um, and I, I give them the feedback and then I say, do you want me to be your coach or do you want me to be your agent? So in other words, do you want me to help you through this process or do you want me to get, to tell you exactly what to do and to make the decision for you? Um, and, or do you, or if it's someone coming to me for advice, do you want me to go be your advocate or do you want me to help you so that you can speak for yourself? Um, and I think there's so many sports cliches at ESPN in so many ways. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes um, too cliche to use that, but people get it right away. The coach or the, or the um, agent thing, it, it, that analogy speaks to people in the sports environment. And I think it's just my own personal brand where if I'm going to deliver a tough message, I want to let them know that I want to help them get to the next level or I'm going to help them rectify the problem. Um, and, you know, it, it took me a long time to figure out what my management style is. Um, because I do want to still foster a creative and collaborative environment where people can come to me and not feel like their idea is stupid. I don't want them to always feel like something is punitive if, if, um, if I don't like their idea or if they do something wrong or make a mistake, because we do still want people to feel like they can take a risk um, and not feel like they're going to get beaten down for it. But as far as getting the feedback and taking it, that was probably hard to hear that I'm too nice when you, you, of course you want people to think you're nice, right? Right. It's also sort of the Midwest in me. I don't know. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, I have found like for my management style, I'm, I'm a nice person. I think like you are. And so it's not easy for me to be harsh, but I find if I, if I need to be, and I am, then it does mean more. So I do think there's a balance. There's the people who are always yelling and screaming and, you know, for the most part, like I, try to be really constructive and, but if someone's not doing their job or really needs to be, um, I don't, I hate the word reprimanded, but you know, really right. need strong feedback. Let's say that 
I do find that it means more when I do that because then they do know I'm serious. It's not like, oh, here she goes on one of her rants again. You know, it, it, right, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think that's important, but I think you know I. I bet that that would be hard for me to take too, but I, I kind of understand what he's saying. There's that happy medium of finding right. the, that works best for you and your, your personality and what's authentic to you. Can you talk about a project that you were excited about that didn't work out and what you were able to learn from that? Oh, Tracy, there are so many amazing pieces that live in the library of <laughs> never saw the light of day. <laughs> it's hard to really quantify that. Um, I think, you know, to be fair, like with live events, sometimes one event goes into overtime and the next event gets gypped or joined in progress. We call it gypped. We call it gypped. Okay. Um, and you know, the show open is the first thing to go. So right. we've had, we have, you know, sometimes we have to work ahead in like a playoff scenario and the series will end early and we didn't get to do the one big piece or, you know, you're working at a grand slam and you're seeing the perfect alignment of these two um, rivals and then that goes awry. Um, but I will say that um, the, the plan that we had for Vegas for NFL draft, I was a little bummed to see that not get executed, but we are in a really good place for when it returns to Vegas in two years. So that's good. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the NBA, the NBA finals creative we had planned for this year was phenomenal and that will not happen now. So that it's all part of it. You know, you have to pivot and you have to sort of move on. Um, I do remember we did a, uh, uh, NFL hall of fame. piece at one point with Jim Kelly and then the hall of fame game did not happen because the field was, um, rained out or there was divots in the field and it was not safe to play on. So that's in there, you know, so there's like a whole litany of stuff in a library where you're like, uh, have a glass of wine. It's just never going to, never going to air. You know, but, um, you know, I will say that it's funny that, you know, how things evolve when, you know, sometimes I'll see a piece air and then I'll give it a little bit of time and I'll go back and watch it again. And then I'll look back on my notes or the original pitch that was on paper months ahead of time and go, oh, wow, that was nothing like we had it planned originally. Um, because the beauty of collaboration is things just pivot and change along the way. Um, and you know, it all ends up the way it's supposed to be, or at least the best that it can be at the time, you know, with the resources and the time that you have. Do you think there'll ever be a special that's here, all the things that didn't make it to air for whatever the reason? <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? That would be kind of fun. That might be, yeah. I don't, you know, you're, you guys can have that one for free, but I think that could be a fun, depending <laughs> on how long this quarantine goes, there may be a fun, like, Here's what was going to, you know, throughout the years. It could be fun little snippets. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. There was one wonderful piece for Women's World Cup in 20, oh, what was it, 2012, 2013. That was beautiful. And we got all the way to the finish line and the music didn't clear. Like they, they pulled it back at the last minute. And I was like, oh, my God, we got to reconstruct the whole thing. And we started recutting and recutting and recutting. And our executive producer was like, no, it's nothing like it was going to be. Never mind. We were like, oh, no. But oh, wow. But, they, do? but yeah. that's, it's good. I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's important for people to know that. It's the same as in sports. You know, we watch a game and we think a coverage is blown or why did the coach call that play or whatever. How did he not see the defender? And what we don't know is all the things that went wrong that caused the final results. 
and all the things that went wrong in those three seconds in which someone missed their block and whatever. Um, and yeah. we criticize. And so I think it's important to know that that happens in all aspects of life and in sports. And so I'm really actually glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, we have an expression for that. It's, um, I don't want to hear about the labor. Just show me the baby. I don't want to know all the crap you went through to get to the finish line. Just show me the piece. Don't tell me all the other stuff. And that's exactly what the viewer is. They just see the baby picture. They have mm-hmm. no idea what the pregnancy, the, the delivery, any of that. They don't want, they don't know any of that. All they know is what they see at the end, you know? And that's, what's really hard about being a coach. I always really empathize with coaches um, because first of all, I, definitely a person who knows they know a lot more than I do. So there is a reason they called that play that I will never know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's very hard to be a coach because at the end of the game, you do have to say it's my responsibility. And even though I knew that was the right play at the time, it didn't work out. So it's my responsibility, but they're not going to say, and also just so you know, the offensive lineman totally missed his block. The receiver ran the wrong route, like the whole thing, you know, (laughs) and he's not, you can't do that. (laughs) you know. Right. That's not the the job. So I think, you know, it's important for us to keep that in mind. Um, So what on the, on the flip side, what, what do you think has been the most rewarding innovation you've been responsible for? Um, You know, I would say that, you know, I did, um, when I look back on everything that I did in soccer, so I worked on the FIFA World Cup 2010 in South Africa. Um, and the Women's World Cup in Germany in 2011, Euros in 2012, and Brazil in 2014. And I was given a lot of freedom and responsibility to oversee all the creative and storytelling for these like massive global events. Um, And it was innovative and rewarding to me in so many ways, mostly because I just learned so much technically, and we created some really, really, in my opinion, some memorable content. South Africa was um, a lot just to like wrap my arms around in 2010 and to to try to steer the content with this incredible country and this ridiculous culture and the people were just beautiful and welcoming and just wanted to share their stories and their culture with us. And it was so great. Um, And then, you know, moving on to, um, you know, Women's World Cup, we were in Germany, and it was just a different beast with the women's team was so successful. And the the story there was just so great. Um, But, you know, the, the World Cup in 2010 was really a huge test for me, personally, even though it was so rewarding for me, professionally, because I was a new mom. And I had to go to South Africa for six weeks. And I was away from my husband, and my one year old. And, um, it was just, I was in this like sort of like, oh, this push and pull the whole time. And I would just say to my team, like, don't even ask me about the baby. I, don't, mm-hmm. I can't talk about it. I just have to get my work done. And I would sort of like just, you know, sort of section off my, my, my sort of two halves of my life where when I was in my hotel room, it was okay to like fall apart and cry or, or Skype my husband or whatever. But when I was at work, I just had to get the job done. So when I look back on that event, it was like a really a bit of a yin and yang for me in the rear view. But for Brazil in 2014, it was the same incredible rich stories. Um, And it was the same, we wanted to just do everything in the country. But when we started the pre-production on that event in 2012, um, we quickly realized how hard it would be to have this large production team on Copacabana Beach where our host set was. So 
just from 2010 to 2012, there was so much technology with fiber that we really dug in and researched how we could sort of have the edit team remotely um, or just stay in Connecticut and move just the live event team down to Copacabana in, in, um, in Brazil. And, you know, I would say that the innovation there and sort of the drive for me personally was I didn't want to be away from my then two small children um, mm-hmm. in Brazil for six weeks and that the technology was really the push to figure out a new workflow for us. And so I worked with an incredible ops director um, named Claude Phipps, and he and I figured out how it would work. And so we were able to produce as if we were in Copacabana Beach, but we were in Connecticut. So we had 177 people in Connecticut with um, four different locations, um, and we were able to produce all the creative, all the features, all the storytelling, and then all the quick turn news content as well, all from Connecticut. So it not only saved us a ton of money, but it, you know, in me personally, I was able to see my family a lot more. Um, and, you know, when I look back on it, that is the first event that we did that way. And now we do almost every event that way, where we keep our edits in Bristol um, and we send just our live team to the live event. You know, and NBC does the same thing for Olympics. And, you know, a lot of the other major broadcasters do a similar workflow now for these big, huge events where we where we would have brought hundreds and hundreds of people to the host country to produce the event. So can you talk a little about that balance? Because I think that's an important thing and something that we all struggle with no matter, you know, where we are in our lives. And I think balance is a tough word because you're never going to be out, be able to balance everything all the time in any sort of even right. way. But can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you navigate that? You mean you mean work with, and like, life, work and life, and family, and and all of those things. Right. <laughs> well, I I will say that quarantine balance is a little different than you know normal balance. But um, you know, I would say that it's sort of a it's sort of a fluid hybrid. Like I, I do, I do think that, you know, my value to ESPN is that I'm a visionary and I'm really creative and I'm a good planner. And I think the planning piece of it has gotten so much um, stronger with me being a parent because I just have to be so much more, um, you know, regimented about the time I have with my kids and the time I have to just buckle down and work. Um, And so I don't know that it's, necessarily work-life balance as it is more of a work-life integration. And, um, you know, I will say that, you know, every day I try to to have time to myself in the morning to get ready before my kids get up and get them out the door. Or right now they don't get out the door, but you get, right. you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, it's my kids sort of get it. Um, they understand that um, our lives sort of work around the sports calendar and they know that like during football season, we don't travel cause it's so busy. And then the literally right after the national championship, we usually go on a really big trip or a vacation and do something awesome because it means that college football playoff is over. Mm-hmm. And we usually do something Super Bowl weekend to celebrate the Super Bowl and to celebrate that football season is over. Um, but they, you know, they know that that, that when sports is really busy, I'm really busy. And, um, and I try to, you know, include them in what I'm doing. They're both huge sports fans. They both play sports. They're eight and 10. 
Um, and so they, they still get excited about when, you know, something comes on the air and they see a piece that they've been watching on my laptop in the kitchen for a week and a half. Um, and, you know, they see it on TV and they're like, oh, that's so cool. There it is. Oh, that was the music we went with, you know. So they feel like they're kind of a part of it. Um, it's, I think it's better that way than sectioning it off because then I'm sort of not sharing what I'm doing with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've definitely been in an edit. They've definitely come to ESPN during champ week and watched basketball all day in a war room with the team. You know, it's, it's a, it, it is a balance. And I will say that, um, you know, there weren't a lot of women who were, mothers at ESPN in production when I was, you know, considering having children. There weren't, there certainly weren't women who um, had a a spouse who also worked because my husband also worked. Um, And so when we decided to do it, it was just like, we're going to do this. And if my career completely tanks, my career completely tanks, but I think I can do it. And I want to do it. I want to do it for myself, but I also want to show all the other women, you know, that we can figure this out you know, it, it can be done and it might not look pretty and it might not always be, you know, super, um, you know, you might feel like you're stretched really thin a lot of days and some days one thing is going to suffer and some days the other thing is going to suffer, but I'm going to try to do it. And, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but you know what? It's nothing is. That's so. <laughs> true. That is 100% true. Yeah. And I think, I think being a a parent has made me a better producer because I'm, I, I see things differently now. And I say that to a lot of the, the women on my team who have now had babies, I say, you're going to be a better producer because your time management's going to be way better because it has to be. And you're going to be more emotional. You're going to, you're going to see things in an athlete or in a, in a parent story or in a family story that before maybe didn't, didn't really resonate with you. And now you're going to really let those shine. And I will say that I think it's, I think it's come true for a lot of the um, young female producers on my team who are now moms. Um, It's been fun to see. And I I like that. um, I show them everything, you know, because I, I want them to see that it isn't perfect, but they can do it too, you know? So how have you seen opportunities change and grow for women in sports and how can we still improve? Um, I think your podcast is a really great store start. I, I commend you so much. I think the only way, um, to improve, you know, things for women in sports media is to be honest about the commitment and to help each other along. Um, I think, you know, this podcast in and of itself, having frank conversations and allowing people to sort of lift the veil a little, little bit and see how, you know, how um, the donuts are made is, is really important for young women who think they want to get into this career. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a juggling act if you want to have kids, but when I look at the rosters at ESPN for production and content, there's a lot more women today than there were 20 years ago. Um, But women in sports are welcome and there is a seat at the table. And the question is, I think that, that, you should sort of ask yourself at the outset of when you decide that you think you want to do this as a career is, you know, it's demanding, it's unorthodox hours, and it's an incredibly tough commitment, not only working the nine to five, but keeping up with the storylines and the headlines and the news cycles. 
And, you know, you can go home at night and shut off the job, but you, you may still need to keep a pulse on what's happening in sports. And if that isn't a hobby or an interest in and of itself, then it's going to feel like homework. But if it, if you're there anyway in your free time, it's a little easier. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's female leaders in production that I look up to um, that are juggling a lot, but, you know, it's it just everything moves so much faster now than it did when I started that I, I don't think I, I would have thought that I would still be in it at this point, but I love it. And I think, you know, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. And to help other young women along, you know, whenever people ask me for co- to grab a cup of coffee or a phone call or a meeting, or can you look at my resume or whatever, I always say yes, because I wish I had had that when I was, you know, sort of trying to find my way. Um, you know, there's a lot of great guys that I've known in the, in the, in the business that have taught me a lot about the nuts and bolts of production, but you know, how to, how to navigate it as a woman, as a woman, I didn't really have anyone to help me through that until about three years ago when I hooked up with, um, this mentoring program at ESPN and I was paired with, um, an executive vice president on the affiliate side. And she really taught me so much about just finding my voice and speaking up for myself and for my team and, you know, being really being an advocate and meaning it for other women. And, you know, I, I love talking to young people because you, you sort it sort of re-energizes you um, or me, I should say at this stage in my career, when I see that excitement and see sort of the passion and, and the energy um, and so to offer some perspective and to help along the way, I'm always happy to do that. That's fantastic. And that's what we need. We are, we are all on the same team. And I think that's, I'm happy before we head into five fun facts, I'm kind of, I'm happy to end that part of the podcast there because something else we talk a lot about on this podcast is how important it is for women to help women. It is not a competition. There's room for everybody. Everybody can find their way. And that feeling of camaraderie is so important because there are going to be enough obstacles. We don't have to be our own. So with that, we are going to head into five fun facts. Are you excited? I can't wait. So we every week we give the same five fun facts to everybody. Uh, so whenever you are ready, we will just kind of rattle on through them. All right, let's do it. All right. What is your favorite moment in sports? So. I- you know, I'm always torn at this one, but I will say that the most emotional I've ever been at a sporting event, and thus is probably why it's my favorite, was the 2008 men's Wimbledon final, which was Federer and Nadal, and it was a five-setter, like what went into the night, into the dark, and Nadal finally won, and he sort of walked over the scoreboard in the dark with all the flash bulbs and hugged his parents and hugged uncle Tony. And it was just this incredible scene. And they had already established that they were these rivals, right? Cause Federer mm-hmm. had won the two years before, but it was Nadal's first Wimbledon. And there's just something magical about Wimbledon anyway, that it feels like a fairy tale, but for it to all happen this way and sort of in the darkness with this, beautiful moment and I was I was at center court in a seat believe it or not for it um it was just an incredible sports moment for me um you know there's lots of great sports moments but that one really just sticks out to me as just this the magic of sports and the magic of 
of competition and rivalry and, and, you know, victory, the agony of defeat and, the, and, and, um, and just the beautiful victory of winning a grand slam. What is your life motto? I will say that this probably pivots quite a bit, but I, I will say that, you know, a, a lot of times I find myself sort of just, you know, this mantra to myself of everything is temporary. So when something awful is happening, like let's just call the quarantine something awful, you know, it's temporary. This isn't going to last forever. So when it, when, when moments are tough, I say everything's temporary, everything's temporary. It's not going to last forever. And then on the, on the, on the antithesis of that is that when something beautiful is happening, I try to have, I try to remember to savor it because everything is temporary and this doesn't happen every day. So like I say that a lot to my, um, my, you know, my uh, colleagues or, or my employees who become uh, parents, I say, everything's temporary. So when they're not sleeping through the night, know that it's not going to last forever. And when they sleep on your chest and it's this beautiful moment, know that it's not going to last forever. Everything's temporary. So savor the good and you can get through the bad. So I will say um, everything is temporary is pretty frequent. Um, the mantra I, I choose to use with my son a lot is, um, choose to be happy. In other words, like it's all about the outlook. You can choose mm-hmm. to be happy or you can choose to be um, discouraged, choose to be happy. Um, and the mantra I use with my daughter is um, be the number one, her name's Katie. I say, be the number one, Katie, not the number two, Susie. Just worry about you. Don't worry about other people. Just be the number one, you. So I think those three, I know you asked for one, but I would say those three are pretty common for me right now. They're all great. So we are happy to have more than one. That's what I real. I love all of them. And I really like the be the number one, Katie, not the number two Tuesday, especially, or God, sorry, the number two Susie. I don't know if it's Tuesday. No, but I think, especially in this age of social media, I think that's an incredibly, incredibly important message. And especially to your daughter and to young girls. Yeah. I think that's very important. So I'm glad you shared that. You, you can um, take it. You can I will. I, mean, I will quote you and I will give you credit, but I am going to use it quite a bit. And I, I can use it with myself. Be the number one, Tracy, not the number two, Susie. So I'm fine with that. Uh, do you have a go-to workout? Yeah. So in January, I bought a Peloton and I love Peloton. I, I have one too. I love. I love it. It's so, it's great, right? It's awesome. So oh. I'm, I'm, I love Allie Love. He's like my jam. So I do uh, Peloton with Allie Love. I used to do cycle bar, which is like a spin class. And I did bar classes. Love that. Um, And if I like won the lottery and didn't have to work and had unlimited time, I would probably do hot yoga every day. But Peloton to me is efficient and you sort of get the sweat on and you can pick the time, amount of time you want or whatever. And Allie Love is just like an angel. So I just love it. She is awesome, and I got mine in January, too, so we were really clairvoyant on that one. We were very, very smart, Um, but I don't know if you've tried Cody Rigsby. He's also a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the boo crew. Yep. He's super fun, too, so that's that's good. We'll have to to ride together sometime. (laughs) It'll be very fun. That'd be great. Uh, Do you have a go-to coffee order? Oh, yeah. I am an absolute Starbucks cult member. I love Starbucks every day. Um. And my regular, like, mobile repeat order is a grande dark brew black eye with sugar-free cinnamon dolce and skim milk, which I know is a mouthful. Sounds delicious. Actually. Oh, it's great. It's, it's like octane, high octane. 
Well, that sounds that sounds great. I'm gonna have to check that one out when I go back once Starbucks is open again. I'm gonna check that yeah, out. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then last but not least, you have a book every woman should read, or that you feel every person should read. So, um, the Monday Night Football director Chip Dean gave me this book a couple years ago. Um, it's called Life Is Good, and it's by the Jacobs Brothers. They're the owners of the Life Is Good clothing company. You know, with the guy on the bike, the smiley mm-hmm. face guy. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. And it's just the simplest statements about life. And I, I, you could read it in an hour. It's so quick and easy, but it's a really good, I keep it in my office. It's a really good touchstone when you're feeling like, ah, and you just need to sort of appreciate something from a different lens. I usually flip through it and I'm like, that's the lesson I needed right now. So that's kind of my go-to book. I will say though, for a little family plug, my sister is an author and, um, her book is uh, My Pulse is an Earthquake, and her name is Kristen Fitzpatrick. Um, so it's a collection of short stories that are all fiction. It's a beautiful collection. I love it. So I read that. I've read that one 100 times because it's hers, but there's that. I love that. Well, thank you, Julie. This has been awesome. I have loved talking to you today. Yeah, it's a blast. I'll do it anytime. Oh, thank you. Well, we will take you up on that. So. Um, and we have you on recording saying it, so now you'll have to do it, but we will definitely, (laughs) definitely take you up on that, that take you up on that. Um, I'm so excited. It was hard for me to get the words out. If you liked what you heard today, and I know you did make sure you are subscribed to us here on iTunes, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're following us on Instagram at fangirl sports network. We'll talk to everybody next week. Bye everybody. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.